0: Welcome to Barabbas Road Church. I'm excited today. It's a always a special day when I get to preach the Word of God. I'm excited about that every single week. Um, while I talk for a moment and introduce this sermon to you, uh, we have people that are lined up to hand out Bibles to you. One day when we get our own facility, we'll have them in either a pew or something so you have them right in front of you. But for now, if you need a Bible and you didn't bring one, we have them for you. So go and lift your hand in the air and people are coming down the aisles with Bibles. And by the way, you need a Bible if you're sitting here and you don't have one. So if you don't, put your hand up, they'll give you a Bible. Now, what we also want to give you, we're all about giving away things. That's right. We're giving away all kinds of things here at Brabant's Road Church. Uh, specifically, here we go. I wrote a book. Yeah. There we go. It's my first book. It's a humble book. It's only one page, and no, I'm just kidding. It's, a, it's very short, though. The book is meant—I I was struggling for this for a few years, actually, trying to write and uh, trying to figure out how to find the right voice. And one of the biggest challenges that I had was who I was writing to. And I personally found a struggle writing out to like sell something or do something else. I wanted to write to you guys as a church. And so, um, you know, at this point, we've been talking for a while. And uh, the commitment we have right now is I'm going to continue to write. And the goal is going to be to write to you guys. And so every time I write anything, we're going to make that free. For Barabbas Road Church always. Um, And you guys are who I'm writing it to. And so uh, you can buy this book if you so desire on Kindle, on Amazon, all that. But again, at Barabbas Road Church, you can always get this for free. We will be giving them away today after church uh, outside. Everyone can have a copy Um, and every Sunday we'll have copies for you to read. It's meant to be read uh, in one sitting, it's, I mean, probably takes you about 30 minutes to an hour if you're a really slow reader, but uh, about 30 minutes to read it. And what's key about the book and why I think it's important is it, it, you know, I think one of the challenges we have, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you likely take for granted certain things that were shocking to you when you first came out. Uh, one of the things, namely, is the name of the church Barabbas Road Church, Barbados Road. What's the deal with your name? And so this book will answer that right away. And uh, I think there's a lot in this. And also, I think what's key about the book that's uh, my motivation writing it, is that the gospel's in this. And I think it's going to make sure that we get this perspective properly. So you know, this is going to be a fun thing to give away to people as they come out. And again, I want you to read them. We want you to take all of them, and uh, hopefully you enjoy that. Now, if you want to know how you can get one, let's say you weren't here, um, and you want to know instead of going to Amazon, if you're not sure about that, you can also go to our brand new website that launched uh, last night at 11 p.m. We've had Brett, John, Ryan, and Tyler working a lot on this very hard for months and months and months and months, spending hours and hours and hours uh, coding and working to have our brand new website. So it is launched. Uh, It is up now. And so it's no longer, if you go to BarabbasRoadChurch.com, it's fine. It'll redirect you. But our new website is Barabbas.com and it is a beautiful website and uh, it's, it's up and running and awesome. So hopefully you guys can check that out. And, and if you see those guys, uh, thank them for the, the tireless work they've done. Also, there's a few people uh, that helped edit this and you know Nikki and some others that really helped edit this and did a, a phenomenal job. And I'm very thankful to them, but hopefully you enjoy the book. If you want to leave a uh, comment on on uh, whatever Amazon or whatever. You actually have to buy one on that because otherwise it won't count it. That's what we learned. So um, it's only a dollar. So in any case, uh, we're going to get into the service now. So if you will go ahead and find John chapter nine verse one, let's jump into the passage. John chapter nine verse one. Let me read this. We'll read this as a congregation. So if you'll stand with me, John chapter nine verse one. We're going to get into the text. That's why we're really here, not for me to tell you about my books let's talk about the book so john chapter 9 verse 1 this is the reading of the word of god as he passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of god might be displayed in him we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he has been born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you were born in utter sin. And do you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. God, in this passage, as we come to these essential truths of John's gospel, I pray that we would see your glory above all else. I pray, Father, we would recognize your glory. We would recognize where we sit in this story. We would recognize these things and we would benefit from them. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in John chapter 9, here's the challenge and one of the reasons why I think we're prone to miss it. If you read John's gospel in sort of the evangelifish manner that we're used to reading the Bible. You're going to read John's gospels for some tips and some pointers on how to deal with conflict. Hey, this blind guy was talking to them and they were listening. Look at how cool he does You know, and we might look at that. Um, I was just at a conference this week and I heard a horrible uh, sermon. God forgive me. I heard a lot of good ones, but I heard a horrible one referencing a book that was written all about how literally, and I've said this so many times, so that was so, was so ironic, literally how you can you know, beat the Goliaths in your life. That was a sermon. And it it was, it was talking about how there's five principles. Now, why five principles? Well, because David picked up five stones. So five principles to get the Goliath in your life. And so when we read the Bible this way, uh, the the challenge I have to ask you is this, and this is the problem that that we're going to face as we get into the text, always that story, the story about David and Goliath, for example, right? if we tell the story about how we can conquer the David and Goliath or conquer the Goliath in our life, we're focused on us. And it shows that when we read the Bible, we're focused on our salvation as the story of our glory. And that's not what the story is about. Let's take a quick look at a video and I'm going to talk about this just a little bit more. So here's the question I want to ask you as we begin. Uh, regular and typical passage that we go to on a normal basis in this church I found is in Ephesians. In Ephesians, uh, particularly chapter 2. And even if you know these verses, I'm going to ask you to Humble yourself and turn with me to them as well. And look again at the, at the text in front of you. You might notice things, perhaps. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, what a most famous passage of Scripture. In verse 8, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me explain, I think, the challenge that I want to ask you about as we start our sermon today. When you think of your salvation, when you think about your Christian life, whose glory story are you telling? I mean, is the gospel to you a story about how you didn't have it all together and then now you do? Is your story now how, you know, I once didn't have purpose in my life and meaning I once was a loser, but now with Christ, I'm a winner. Is your story something like this? Man, my dreams weren't coming true, but I came to Christ and God wants me to dream again so he can make my dreams come true. He wants me to dream it so I can do it. I mean, you could go on and on. And in each of these cases, the focus and the character and the main person in the story is obviously you. And that's typical because when we read books, we always do that. We read books and we make ourselves the protagonist. That's a normal way to read the story, any story. But the Bible's different than that. In the Bible, we are not the protagonist. And here's here's the catch, ready? In our own salvation, we're not the protagonist. See, we're saved by grace through faith Okay. And that the whole thing that is a gift of God, it's not a result of works. Why? And he says, so that no one may boast. Now, let me explain for a minute. We just mentioned, you know, some of these stories, David and Goliath, I, I brought up earlier. The, the thing that would stop us from seeing that I would say is John's gospel more than any other. John's gospel doesn't leave us any choice but to see Christ and Christ alone in salvation. If I could say it this way, I would say this, that, that the gospel of John, John's gospel is a revelation of God's glory in salvation. Now go to the prologue of John's gospel and let's look at that again, because i turn turned to this every single week. I absolutely had no intention of doing so. But every time I go to a new passage, I'm like, wow, that prologue sure did set me up for the rest of this book. And let's read it again, and you're going to see something, I think, pretty neat today. The prologue, he says this, the verse 9 of chapter 1 in John, it says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So that sounds pretty bad. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, because they were awesome. See, if we just put a period there, we'd be like all that did believe, they were way cooler than the world and way cooler than the Jewish people that didn't get it. They were awesome. So God gave them the right to become children of God. I mean, they had a faith when no one else did. Wow. Don't you want to have that faith? That's what we want to say, but it doesn't say that. It says he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so when we think about this idea here, the, the, the emphasis in this gospel, I think, is verse 5. Uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is that idea that we've said over and over and over again. Here's the main idea of the sermon, if you want to write it down. I'm going to say it two ways. I'll give you the sub-main idea, and then I'll give you the main idea. Here's the sub-main idea, the, the one that I'm thinking of. Your salvation, and John drives us home, your salvation is not the point of your salvation. God's glory is the point of your salvation. Your salvation is not the point of your salvation. God's glory is the point of your salvation. In other words, here's the main idea. Your salvation is the story of God's glory. And your salvation itself is the object example of it. Does that make sense? Your story is is the story of God's glory. That's what's happening right now. It is not about God just sitting there as a genie, hoping that you can achieve your your kingdom that you're trying to build for yourself or whatever thing that you're seeking. My friends, this sounds like so obvious and subtle. It's not. It's not at all. Hopefully, you're going to see this mega theme of glory in our passage today. Now, I read this prologue. I hope you liked that prologue. It's good because we're going to look at it a lot today. It's actually, I'm using the prologue as the outline of our sermon today. And I'm doing this on purpose. I've, I've done this actually for two different messages that I never actually used it as an outline. But it just has outlined the way I think John is constantly showing these dialogues and, and how they play out. So again, this first passage, verses, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That, this idea of Jesus coming into the world as light. And then you see him... You know, come in and let's look at this. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Verse 1, I want to point this out. Why is this so significant? Jesus heals more blind people in this gospel than anything. Being blind and being given sight is a huge thing. And remember in the prologue, the true light was coming into the world. And sight and light have a lot to do with one another. And this is what's so cool about this. He just got finished, if you look in the one verse previous to this keeping in mind that chapters and these chapter breaks were added later. So when it was written, it wasn't written with a new chapter. But look at verse 59 of chapter 8. So, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, you might think that's interesting, but go back to verse 12 of chapter 8. Jesus, at this great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, where the Jews were celebrating God's provision in the wilderness, at the light ceremony, at the end of the feast, when there'd be giant pillars of fire reminding the Jewish people of God's provision in the wilderness, of his presence and his care for them, Jesus stood up in the midst of them and said, I am the light of the world. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then they don't believe in him. They don't listen to him. They don't follow him. They don't hear what he has to say. In verse 47, he says, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Whoa, he's on the light of the world, but you're blind. And the problem not with the light it's with your eyes. You're not of God. He says the problems with your ears, you're not of God. And so this, this idea has just been said. So after this and saying, he hid himself. Now we see John illustrating their blindness He's illustrating their blindness and what happens? An object example of it. This is a picture for us, an illustration of all the stuff we said. So here's what's cool about it. There should be nothing new. This isn't like, hey, John's taking us to a new point. Here's a new event. He's using the dialogue and this example of this man to demonstrate what's already been happening to illustrate it for us. If I do my job properly at the end of John's gospel, you should have heard essentially one message over and over and over and over again, all the way through, because John is so keen on keeping his message so tight. And so if we look here at verse one, as he passed by, as who passed by? As Jesus passed by. We could talk about this uh, a little bit, but as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now who saw who? A blind man obviously didn't see Jesus. I mean, that's the, he's blind, right? So who saw him? Jesus saw him. And next week, I don't want to steal my own thunder, but next week, Jesus is going to call about coming in his own sheep, hearing his voice. He's the one that saw the blind man. We remember with the disciples and, and, and whatnot, when he called them, they said, hey, we found the Messiah. But when you actually look at the story, it says that Jesus found them. Jesus called them. Jesus went and found them. The story in John's gospel, man gets no credit for anything in the entire gospel. Jesus found the disciples. Jesus finds the blind man. Wow. I love this. And this is such a, an indictment on the works-based religion of the Pharisees, which was all about our self-effort and what we need to do to ascend to God and, and to make our way to God. And so this is such a combat to that. But there's no ability for us to boast of our position in Christ because of what we've done. So again, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And I love this. He wasn't blinded because he'd done something wrong. He was blind from birth. He was literally born in blindness. And again, when I think back at verse 47 of the previous chapter, look at this again. It's a theme again, all the way through John, whoever is of God, hears the words of God earlier in the same book. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And the Bible and John's gospel in particular breaks, breaks down the same point that we see Paul make in Ephesians, that every person on this planet is in an image of Adam, essentially. We are born in sin. We're our, we are in the image of our parents. And so we indirectly bear the image of God, but we directly bear the image of our parents, our fallen parents. Okay? And that's the idea all the way through. And that because of that, we are, we don't have the hardware. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God, right? That's the idea here. We are not of God, and so here, here's an illustration of it. Here's a man blind from birth. He was born into it. You might say, "Well, that's not fair." You're like, "Is it fair that you're sitting here right now and you're not getting beheaded by ISIS?" I mean, is that the game you want to play? We can talk about that too. But this is the idea. This man was blind from birth. This is his his perp- his like position right here. It wasn't his action. And that's exactly what's so fascinating to the disciples. His disciples ask Jesus when he sees the, the blind man, and notice they don't even see the blind man; they just see an argument. Right? And they say, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Now, I want to stop for a minute and think about this. They were, and there's some debate about this. Someone say, "Hey, they're not talking about karma, whatever." I think they they are. This is it's not karma; it's just the normal view of man that man gets what he deserves. And so if man's not, you know, being beheaded or not having something bad happen to him, we think, hey, well, we deserve good stuff that we have. We deserve the good things we have. Another story in the, in the synoptic gospels, I think in Luke, Jesus walking by and, and uh, the disciples see the towers and they say, hey, there was this tragedy earlier where these towers fell down on these people. And, and they asked Jesus, hey, were these people where the towers fell worse sinners than everybody else? And Jesus' response was essentially, don't wonder why they were in it wonder why you weren't the idea that i mean that's essentially if i could paraphrase what he was getting at that's kind of the idea we sort of assume that hey well nothing bad's happened to me so that must be because i'm pretty awesome you know and if something bad happened to you well maybe it's because you did something wrong this is the ultimate implication of law living remember the david and goliath example i have a, hey here's how you've conquered the Goliath in your life here's five principles guess what you're not david and you're gonna fail so whose fault is it well you didn't follow those five principles sorry that's the idea here whose fault was it that this man is blind was it his parents did they sin while he was in the womb and that's what made him blind or what did he sin in the womb i don't know what that would be exactly just you know punching well i don't know that's the case and our baby is sinning a lot because my wife's like ah the baby's punching her all the time so i don't know but that's what they asked jesus okay and so look at his response. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now pause for a moment. He's not giving a cop out. When someone asks the question that they asked, and I want you to write this down. I want you to think about this. The question itself demonstrated and showed that they're in the wrong paradigm. You know, They're in the wrong you know, system. They're in the wrong book. They're in the wrong story. Okay, They're in the wrong paradigm. And their question illustrated. Jesus is like, look... It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You might want to underline that. That the works of God might be displayed in him. He's, are you actually meaning to tell me, Jesus, that this man was born blind so that God would get glory? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm meaning to say. That is exactly what I'm meaning to say so he goes on. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back. See, Now, let me explain first. I think that before we get into this works of God aspect here, let's look at this pool of Siloam. I I, I was stuck on this because it's an incidental detail, it seems, but John doesn't really do that. He doesn't give us just fancy details for no reason. And so this pool of Siloam, I'm like, what's the deal with this? It sounded familiar to me. And I remembered, wait a second, I remember this because when I was studying about the water festival or the water ceremony that happened at the feast they just had, that was what they would do is they would take water from the pool of siloam and they would take it and put it on the altar of god and the purpose of that during the feast of booths was to remember god's provision in the wilderness of him providing water for them so they wouldn't thirst and so during this feast of booths you know to remember that they did two things mainly besides the sacrifices and everything else that were unique to our story one is they would do this water ceremony now, if you look at John chapter seven, let's look at that ceremony for a second because here's what transpired at that ceremony. and I think it's pretty profound. At the water ceremony in John chapter seven, th- verse 37, while the Jews are taking water from this pool of Siloam and pouring it on the altar, remembering God's faithfulness that God brought water for them out of the desert uh, when they're in the wilderness, when they're away from the promised land, Jesus stands up and says this in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus stands up at the feast on this last great day, during this water ceremony, when people are taking water from the pool of Siloam, and he stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, come to me, I'm living water. On that same day at nighttime, they would have these big pillars of fire. Jesus says, remember we looked at it in verse 12, I am the light of the world. If anyone comes to me, right, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now here's what's fascinating. I've always wondered when I thought of this, you know, those are two really good stories, you know, but what links living water and light? I mean, really. They're both cool. They both illustrate something fascinating about Jesus. But I think John shows us here. I think John shows us how these two things are linked because look at what happens here. And I think it's neat. Jesus sees a man born blind, right? And what does he do? Having said these things after he says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that you see by Right? That's what he says in verse 12 of chapter eight. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You'll see by my light. So he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm the one by which people can see. And having said these things, what does he do? He says, you could see. No, he goes through this ritual. Now, this is what's fascinating because all the time when he cures blindness, he just does it. But right here, he goes through this mechanism. It says, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva And he put it on the guy's eyes. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, the same pool that people took the water out of that Jesus was saying, come to me, anyone who thirsts. And here's what's so amazing about this. I think this is a fair thing. And you might want to write this down. Living water washes blind eyes to see the light of the world. Living water washes blind eyes to see the light of the world. This this idea of is being just linked together in the feast. All the stuff he's just said, and the Jews wouldn't listen, we're seeing him prove with this guy blind from birth. He says, go wash in that pool so that you could see this light. Wow. I mean, that's just like in your face. Now, here's what's so fascinating. Go back to the verse earlier when he says, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's what's so cool. The purpose of this man's blindness was to display God's glory. How How so? Go to Isaiah chapter 42. Let's take a tour. Isaiah chapter 42. Our eloquent prophet. Isaiah chapter 42. Let's look at verse 1. It says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's speaking about Christ. I have put my spirit upon him. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Verse five, when he says this, when they repeat this, just thus says God, the one who created everything. It's remind us, thus says the Lord who actually can do things that he says. That's kind of the emphasis here. The one who can like make everything who said, let there be light. And there was light. The guy, same God who said this, says this, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Jesus came as this light. And one day, again, I want to remind you that one day the nation will see that light and they will believe, but they don't right now. Here he was standing in the midst of of his own people and his own people did not receive him. So he came to give sight, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Christ came to give sight to the blind for God's glory. And the key is in verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I give to no other. Remember Ephesians? We are saved by grace through faith, and not of your, that not of yourselves, so that no one may boast. John's gospel, and this scene in John's gospel in particular, is showing God's work and salvation in such a way that only God and God alone gets the glory for our sight. God and God alone gets the glory for our faith. God and God alone gets the glory for our salvation. And that's the idea here. He says, I'm going to come and make blind people see. Why? Why? For my glory. For my glory. Not because I feel bad for blind people or there's that, but because I want to display my glory. Now let's stop for a minute and describe what we mean by glory. Because what is glory? You might want to write that down. Glory? Question mark. What is it? Now here's the thing. I think glory is a hard word to define. In fact, I'm going to say that it's somewhat impossible to define. let me give you an analogy first that might help. If I said to you, describe a chocolate cake you could probably do a pretty good job. It's moist and has this wonderful sugary flavor. You could talk about the component parts of it. You could say it has some flour and eggs and stuff in it, right? It's got all this stuff, all right? And you could talk about the component parts. You could talk about how you make it. You could talk about the utensils you use. You could describe a chocolate cake in pretty good detail. But if I said to you, what is beauty? It's a lot harder to describe. Beauty is, you just got to kind of see it. And I would say glory is similar to that. You kind of have to see glory, but let me do my best to not leave it there and explain it the best way I can, understanding that I think that there's there's always a roundaboutness to it. But I think there's two things that, to me, help me think of glory, and neither of them are adequate. Okay, the first, I like the term fame. People might think that that's a, a small word, but I think it's an important word, fame, being famous, being known, being, you know, when we think of something famous, we're supposed to see the beauty, not infamous, but famous, the, the beauty and the manifold, you know, awesomeness of this thing we see. We see that thing is famous and known. It reminds me of the Hebrew word for glory, which is kavod, which has this idea of heavy it could also mean heavy. And I love the term heavy, the idea of heaviness, because it reminds me of our planetary solar system, the idea that the heaviest object is what everything orbits around. Glory is the thing that shows God's great majesty, unique beauty, shows his importance that everything should orbit around and so when he says, I'm not going to share that with someone else, I'm not going to allow any other protagonist in my story. No one else gets to be famous in my story. No one else gets to be famous in your salvation, but God. That's the idea of what he's saying here. I'm going to make blind people see for my glory. Now let's go down to the second part. We say, well, wait, doesn't that make God conceited? I'm going to do this, honey. I love you, Bex. I'm going to do the dishes so that we know how great I am. If I said that, you'd be like, Wow, that's a really silly guy you married there, Becky. Um, why is it so ugly when we as people tell people to focus on how great we are? That we talk say it's conceited. Why is boasting so ugly? And here's why it's so ugly. If I say, look at me, look what I did. We know intrinsically that that person is not worthy of that attention. They are not worthy of that orbit. Of that heaviness in our life, they're not worthy of the thing they're asking for. Therefore, what they say is ugly, and we know that intrinsically. That's why when someone says something, we say that's conceited. It's an ugly thing. Is that fair enough? But here's the question: When we, when God does it, it's not the same thing. When God does it, He is worthy. He's infinitely worthy. And for God not to seek the most worthy thing would make him somehow inferior. There is nothing more worthy than God. And it's absolutely appropriate for God to seek his own glory in everything because that would be his highest and greatest good. Some of you are in the book club, we have a secret book club. You're all invited to be a part of it. There you go. Um, where we read books and the book we just read was the ends for which God created the world by Jonathan Edwards. It's all about this. Isn't that funny how it comes up? Um, this idea that God does everything for his glory is a theme and is a mega theme in the Bible. God gives sight to the blind. Christ came and here's a blind man. They said, why was he born blind from birth? And Jesus says, so that God, so I can, the works of God might be on display the work of God in what bringing sight to the blind and nobody gets credit for it. But God go to Isaiah chapter 48, because this idea of glory is pretty huge I think no passage in scripture is so vehement about God's glory as Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. He says this, talking about Israel and what God's going to do. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? The word profaned means to be made common. That's why we're not supposed to use the word, the name of God in vain or in a common way. His name isn't common at all. It's supposed to be famous and revered. He says, my glory, I will not give to another. That's why God made everything. This idea here is profound. He's worthy unlike us. His fame and his weightiness is proper unlike us. God's glory is the story of all creation, and Scripture is telling that story in a very specific way, and we are simply the object examples of his glory. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what kinds of things? Are you telling me everything is done for his glory? Go to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 Verse twenty-five. Notice we're in some theology right now in the middle of our passage. If you don't get this, you're not going to see what John's doing. In Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 25, look what he says. Uh, The Lord says this. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honor me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or weird you with frankincense. Is it 45 here? Uh, 25, I'm sorry. 43, 25. He says, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake. Why did God save you? Because it was for his own sake. See, the light shines in the darkness and and we see this idea and he forgives sin. Why? For his own glory. Why does he save anyone? That's a real life, actual logical question we should say when we see that man deserves condemnation. And the question is, why does God save anyone? Well, it's simple for his glory to display his glory so we can see his glory and enjoy his glory and that we would be the most enjoyable in knowing his glory look at chapter 43 verse 1 look at this same chapter we see that he forgives sin for his glory chapter 43 verse 1 he says but now thus says the lord he who created you actually let's look at verse uh uh yeah we can look at verse 1 do i have that up there let's look at verse 6 let's start at verse six, just so we have time. He says, talking about what he's going to do for Israel. He says, I'll say to the North, give up and to the South, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Why? Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, I want to stop for a minute. When he says, everyone who I called, who's called by my name, who is created for my glory. Remember Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This isn't saying that we're created for his glory in the sense like bring everyone that was created for my glory. Because guess what? Everyone on the planet is created for God's glory. And someone, you're going to glorify God either on purpose because you're going along with it. Or you're going to glorify God in being condemned justly and his justice will bring him glory, but you're going to glorify God, whether you like it or not. But what he's saying here is everyone that's specifically called by my name, who I created for my glory, I would say in that call, it's that reference. I love that reference in Ephesians. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared, but beforehand that we should walk in them. Boom. Do you see this? Who I formed and made. We're created for his Glory. I love that. And right after saying that, look what he says, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears, all the nations gather together. So this is the opposite. Verse seven is the people he's called. They have ears and they listen. They're the ones that can see his creation and see his glory. But in contradistinction to that, you have the people who are blind, yet have eyes, they're deaf yet they have ears. All the nations gather together and the people assemble, who among them can declare, who among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I chose, I have chosen. You may know and believe me and understand that I am he. For I am before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. My friends, remember I said earlier in John's gospel, in his prologue, it says in, in, in chapter one, verse five, he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What does he say here? There is none who can deliver from my hand. He's like, if I want to give someone sight who's blind, I can do that. I will be glorified when I say I will be glorified by whom I say will be glorify me in the way I say they will glorify me. My works will happen in this way. Now, this is the God that we're talking about. We have to understand where the gospel fits into all this. Look at chapter five. Look at chapter five of Isaiah. Verse 13. He says, therefore, my people go in exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, for Sheol or death, right? The place of the dead has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down and her revelers and he who exalts in her. And then he says, and so God was bummed out because he missed out on some of his glory because some people didn't accept him. So God was kind of bummed because he really didn't get glory. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says man is humbled and each is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. Do you see that? God is exalted in justice. He's glorified in punishing sin. He's glorified in saving and he's glorified in condemning. He's not like, oh, I'm ashamed of my wrath. His wrath is part of his glory. When we see somebody who's like a child serial rapist or something and we see them get what they deserve, what do we do? We cheer because justice was served. And that is the same thing that happens. God is famous for executing his justice in the same way he should be famous in giving grace and mercy. God does everything for his glory. Remember, Proverbs 16 says that everything was made for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction in Proverbs 16, four. In Ephesians, we see that he, he, got, you know, he, he chooses people for his glory. It says that we were chosen, for the foundation, or chosen before the foundation of the earth and predestined. Why? According to the counsel of his will, for his glory, to the praise of his glory, it says over and over in Ephesians. In Romans 9, it says, what if God desiring, right, to pour out glory on the ones that he chose, he puts up with, the, with vessels that are prepared for destruction until he can lavish his, his mercy and grace upon those he's prepared for salvation, for his glory. What we're seeing in this Romans passage here is this picture right now. That God is saying, I'm putting up with sinful people because I chose that certain people I'm going to show glory or I'm going to show grace to, and that's going to give me glory. And I'm waiting for that to happen. I'm executing justice and I will execute justice in the meantime. But when it all is settled, if you're sitting here right now and you were saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, you were predestined before the foundation of the world and God put up with all the sins leading up to this moment for his glory in saving you. And Paul is so overwhelmed by that in Romans. Look at Romans 11, because he just kind of in, in his whole comment on how crazy this all is, talking about God's plan to to do all this. Look what he says in Romans 11. In Romans 11, verse 36, after everything he said, he's gone on about Israel being set aside, so they'll be brought back, and so that we can come in. And we see this whole plan, and then Paul's just overwhelmed by it. And he says, uh, he says, for look at verse 33. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or (coughs) excuse me, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Do we see this? So here we are, and they ask, they ask Jesus, hey, why was this man blind for birth? And Jesus is saying, so the works of God might be displayed in him. And that is the, the picture that John's gospel is painting. Well, let's look at the, the reply. The next portion from the prologue, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming in the world, he was in the world. The world is made through him, yet the world did not know him. How does that give God glory? Well, again, it's talking about man's inability. So here he is, this guy is healed. And it says the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? So what I love about this, he said, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Everything he said in verse 11, look at verse 11 carefully. Everything he said was non-supernatural. It was plain. It was believable. It was true. It was real. It was literal. The man doesn't even call Jesus Lord right now. He just says this guy named Jesus did it. Well, think about the resurrection. A real tomb in real space-time history, real people find it empty. And then real people say they saw him rise from the dead. These are normal, non-supernatural facts. But guess what? No one believed it. They didn't believe it. What did they say next? They say, well, where is he? And he's like, I don't know. They weren't receiving what he had to say. Go to 1 Corinthians 2. Why? Why wouldn't they receive it? And why don't people receive it? If you say, well, look, look how much this makes sense. If you get excited about your faith and you want to tell people about it, you're like, look, the gospel makes sense. You should trust it. And this is one of the reasons I think that evidentialism, you know, or, or foundationalism as, a, as an apologetic method is, is flawed. But if you know what I'm talking about there, then you get it. But if you, don't worry about that. Uh, because here's why. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. It says, the natural person... That's the person that's not of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For because or for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen to that. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Why are they folly to him? And I'll tell you why. Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 tells us. Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 tells us. It says that God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Why? For they exchanged the glory of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of God for images of animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up and he blinded them even further. So they were not able to see any of his glory because they refused to see it. They were, they did not see fit to acknowledge him. And therefore, when you come and say spiritual things, you're talking to people that have already the problem, the really the very definition of our blindness, of our natural blindness could be defined in that we are not looking for God's glory at all, but we've exchanged it. And all we are doing is looking for our own. We are looking for glory in the things that are made. Isn't it ironic that an atheist, a strong atheist who says there is no God, there's no purpose, there's no meaning in life will say, but you're special because you're stardust. Well, what makes stardust any better than dust? It's still stuff. It's still trying to derive glory from things that are made and created. It's an exchanging of the glory. So therefore, if you talk about the glory of God, you talk about the spiritual things, the glory of the Christ who came, they can't understand it because they've exchanged that glory. They've already traded it away and they can't see it. They're looking at something else. They can't see God ever because they're looking too much at their own navel. There's just impossible to see because they're just looking down at it. So here Jesus does this thing to this guy and he tells them and they should be like, wow, that guy sounds cool. We should believe in him, but no. We see that John shows the next thing. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here we saw the, you know, in the world thing, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here because I think the world could be described as non Israel, perhaps. That's the best way to use it. But in the case I just mentioned, it was his neighbors and the people around there, just the folks. But here we see in the next passage, John sort of zooms in a little bit. Not just any folks now. Now, the people that had all the prophecies, that had all the, the Isaiah, they had that. They had Isaiah. They had the scroll of Isaiah and they read it all the time. They're supposed to be experts in the scroll of Isaiah. And that's what they had, right? Well, here to those guys, they bring Jesus. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been born blind. Notice they keep saying, they don't say they brought to him, Hank, Bob, the guy is known as the guy that used to be blind. Why? Because that's how God gets the glory. By the way, that's why I wrote this book. I am Barabbas. One of the things about this book that I think is so neat to me is that Barabbas is never fleshed out as a three-dimensional character. He's only known as the murderer, the one who's not Christ. In the same way, this man is a man who's known as the one who was blind and now sees because God gets the glory in this. That's, it's all to show this man's place in the story for God's glory. They brought to the Pharisees, a man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Sabbath was something that the Jews were given by God and they should have celebrated it. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. And they should be like, wow, you went to that pool asylum, washed off this mud and now you could see, wow, light of the world, living water. Oh, that's Isaiah. Man, Well, this guy's really good. No. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. By the way, God doesn't keep the Sabbath. God still does everything on the Sabbath. That's Jesus' whole argument all the time. This man can't be, well, okay. But others said, well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? Well, how do they know he's a sinner? Well, because they've defined his sin as not keeping the Sabbath. Literally, they're judging God as being not as righteous as themselves. I hope that makes you feel humbled. But doesn't that happen right now when you get in internet debates with people and they say, look at God committing genocide. Oh, right. So he doesn't measure up to your standards. Oh, I don't believe in morality. Oh, so then what standards is he not measuring up to? Exactly. Help me because I can't understand. Well, here they have the standard they made up and they say, well, God doesn't measure up to our standards. He's a sinner. So how can he do such signs? Do you see their blindness? It's on display. They were focused on their glory. So they couldn't see his. So, and there was a division among them. So they said to again, to the blind man. So you see blind people talking to a guy that was blind, but could see. And they said, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Now, why would he call him a prophet? Well, because they just said he was a prophet earlier. Okay. And so that's probably why he said, well, he's a prophet. Notice if you are going to follow this guy's logic here, he goes from saying he was a man to saying he's a prophet To them, finally, him saying he's Lord. And you could see his transition. And all of it happened after his eyes were opened. You could see his understanding of Christ grow. And then he worships him, right? Um, So he says he's a prophet. Now, where am I right now? Um, And he's he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind. So they're like, aha, you were always able to see. This is just a big fake. And he received his sight. And had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? They don't want to believe. Well, how then does he now see, they asked him. His parents answered, well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents were cowards why did they say this? They were trying to be politicians. And then John explains to us why they made such a a lame-o response. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed. They had already agreed. They're like, neater, 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 neater. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. But look at John 12 for a moment. Look at John 12, because this is really the the gist of this. We're going to see this coming up in a little bit. Look at John 12, verse 27. I love this scene. We're going to see it in a little bit. Look at, listen to this. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour talking about going to the cross, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What was the purpose of Jesus going to the cross to glorify God? I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your own sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to the show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Listen, they're blindness. They're talking to the Christ. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? He said earlier in John's gospel, unless you believe that I am you'll die in your sins. You're going to go to hell. Here they are sitting next to him. They're like, who is this guy? Hello? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We know in Colossians, it says we once were darkness and now we are light in the Lord. In Ephesians, he says, walk as children of the light. We see this idea expressed here. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. He hid the light from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that... The words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. What we're saying is Isaiah wrote his portion and it's being quoted here by John to express that this whole thing is happening so that God alone gets glory for salvation and it is appropriate. that's the case. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah talked about people being blinded because he saw his glory. He saw that God will not share his glory. He saw that salvation is about God's work and God's alone. And we are the recipient and the object example of his glory and giving grace. He saw that and that's what he spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it just like the parents so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, right? Why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The very thing Isaiah was written to rebut. They loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from man making himself weighty and heavy and famous and awesome. They loved that. And by the way, so do we. So does American Christianity everywhere you go. That's why we take famous actors and athletes and bring them up to talk to you. That's how we do that. We love man's glory. But that's the definition of blindness. That's the very definition of what blindness is, is it's us looking around in our own glory. We weren't made for that. We were created in Christ Jesus for his glory. And that's the thing we were very made for. When we see this this contrast, it's so black and white. It's it's so apparent. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So notice they they said to him all this stuff uh, about, you know, do you see him? His parents said they don't believe him. But look at this next passage. This is my favorite part of this whole thing. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. So the second time they called the man who'd been blind. Now remember we know why the parents didn't, didn't say it because they believed in the glory that comes from man. Look at what the Pharisees say to the man. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. And then they said, we know that this man's a sinner. I want you to underline, give glory to God. And then go down to verse 38, 37 rather. Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And it's he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. In this passage, you're going to see, they say, give glory to God. And at the end of this passage, you're going to see he does. But look at whose glory. You see this idea? This this is a a challenge of whose glory story is in play right now. Give glory to God. This man's a sinner. He doesn't measure up to us. This is our glory story here, right? He's like, come on, get on board. That's what they're saying. Give glory to God. This man's a sinner, right? And he answered whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind. Now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Meanwhile, the pool that they that he was they were supposed to, this man went and washed and was called sent. He was sent from God. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If they heard this, they should be like, in Isaiah, it talks about this happening. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Guess what? That's true. But so were they. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Notice this, who's seeking who? Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, oh, underline that, having found him, he saw him, verse one, he found him. Verse 35, he said, do you believe in the son of man? By the way, if you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, you might think, well, you're saying all this stuff about God making it happen. Yeah, if you're sitting here right now and you don't believe, who brought you here? Your Your awesomeness? When, when the question is asked to you at the end of the sermon, do you believe? Can you see him? Do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. I've said before that the sort of the, this idea of regeneration preceding faith is so like emphatic in John's gospel. It's sort of like impossible to miss. The man had to be given new eyes to see. And he believes is evidence of this fact. Of course, God's beautiful and everything because he has eyes now. Jesus said, you've seen him. Who is he? You've seen him. Wow. You were born blind. Now you can see this guy. The the light gives sight. It is he who is speaking to you. You can hear him. And what does he say? Lord. And And some people, cults in particular say, when it says Lord, it means like, sir. Cool. Lord. And he worshiped him amazing how hard that is. Um, and he worshiped him. Do you see this beautiful thing? He saw them and he said, give glory to God. And he does. And so finally, verse 39, I always have been reading the prologue to you up to verse 13. This whole picture shows that, that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, you now see him who gets credit for this man seeing Jesus? Jesus does. You were saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, not of works, so no one can boast. Who gets credit for this man seeing Jesus and worshiping him? Jesus does from beginning to end. But if you go to the next verse, I love it. Verse 14 in John's prologue says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is summing up John's gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When you read this gospel, you look at blind people, you look at what he's done. And what do we do? I can see his glory right now. Do you read this gospel and do you see his glory? Is it a story about his glory or do you just see your own? Is it tips and tricks and methods to help you have a better life? Or do you see his glory? Do you see his glory from the father, full of grace and truth? Contrast that to, the, to the, the, the Jewish folks here that didn't believe. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see to God be the glory. And those who see may become blind. The ones who pretend that they can see that are seeking their own glory. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. They said, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains, their guilt in particular of saying that they can't see Jesus, of rejecting Jesus in this moment. Their guilt remains. (sighs) Go to John chapter five, verse 37. John chapter five, verse 37. They said, are we also blind? John chapter five, verse 37. Are we also blind? Is what they asked him. Let's, flesh this out. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. So that's also quoting from the prologue, verse 18. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. That's where the word is. You know, you try to get in the scriptures, but the scriptures aren't getting in you because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me that you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Why? Why will you receive someone that comes in his own name? Why? Well, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's why they'll receive someone else because they're blinded, focused on one another's glory. They love, we love special teachers with an education because we get glory for that. We love a good story about pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps because we get glory for that. We're just such hard workers. We love those stories. No one likes a story about a criminal who wins the lottery and then he's happy. That's the gospel. No one wants to watch that movie. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you Moses. And he goes on and describes this. But the problem that they had was that they're seeking glory from one another. So what's the point of all of this? All of this, what's the point? Go to First Corinthians one. First Corinthians one. And this is how we're gonna end it. Such a beautiful passage. This is what I want you to do after reading John's gospel. This is almost a commentary on what we just read. Listen to this. Paul says this, for consider your calling brothers. When he describes salvation here, he's describing it as a calling. Jesus comes and he calls, who who is it? Just consider, think about your calling. Think about your salvation. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he goes on in chapter 10, he says, do all things for the glory of God. What's the application from this? I I told you already the main idea. The main idea of our message was very, very plain, right? It was very plain that the story, your salvation is not the point of your salvation. God's glory is. Your salvation is the story of God's glory. And by the way, his glory is the point of of us being saved right now. Now that you're saved, so there's two folks in here. If you don't know God and you've never been saved, you don't know who Christ is, let me say this stop seeking your own glory. Here's what salvation is repent, recognize your blindness, ask for new eyes. Give your faith to the one who took your place on the cross, who did all of it to save you, and rely on his work. Be the one who's saved, not the one who's saving yourself. Do that by calling out to him in your chair sometime before the service is over. Just say to him in your seat, God, I'm a sinner. Will you save me? God gets the glory for it, not you. But if you've done that, you were saved from having to seek your own glory. You're saved from this other story that we were constantly trying to tell. You're saved. You know, that whole thing, seek first the kingdom of heaven. It's not just like pithy advice to help you live your life better. It's what you were made for. It's, it's the purpose of your existence. It's the thing that will give you joy in this life is seeking his glory. We were made for that thing and that is what we are purposefully here for. It's for his story to be proclaimed in our life. It's for his glory to be shown through us. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story that you've revealed to us. Thank you so much for giving us sight, lighting and enlightening our eyes and our minds to see your glory and creation and redemption and justice and mercy. Father, thank you for taking on my blind eyes, giving me sight, giving me belief, giving me faith, lavishing your grace upon me. Father, I ask that today in our congregation, those that don't know you, that have heard for the first time this story, uh, you know, we don't practice disgraceful and underhanded ways, Father. Your gospel is effective, and so I pray that it would do its work today. And Father, even if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, you will be glorified regardless. But I pray right now, Father, for those that uh, do believe this gospel and believe these things, that We can live for your glory. We can orbit around you. You can be famous in our life. We can make you famous with our words. We can put everything around you at the center of everything we do. Father, I pray that we would do these things with courage, but with confidence, knowing that this is the true key to joy. I praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.